grain in Egypt, go down there and buy some food for us. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. The story continues. When they get there, they're accused of being spies. Uh, This is the first visit. There's one of two that they make. And Joseph is drawing out from his brothers the reason for coming to see him. And so we'll pick up the story uh, in chapter 43. I encourage you um, to go home and read through the whole story uh, of Joseph, and uh, you'll see where we're hoping to learn from it tonight. But I want to read just some sections of this story. So after they've been questioned and grilled by Joseph in Egypt, they return home, and the money that they've uh, taken with them to pay for the grain has been returned to them. It is something that causes them deep consternation. They're very concerned and alarmed by that. And we'll pick up the reason why later on. So from the beginning of chapter 43. This is the second visit. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they'd eaten all the grain that they'd brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, The man warned us solemnly, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you, send your, if you will send your brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down, because the man said to us, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel, that is Jacob, said, Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? And then from verse 15, And so the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver, and Benjamin also, they hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men into my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare dinner. They are to eat with me at noon. Those of you who know the story know that at this stage still, Joseph has not revealed his identity to his brothers. He's keeping it quiet. And yet we see God working in the brothers' lives as they meet with Joseph in all of these scenarios. So then from verse 26, when Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them how they were. And then he said, how is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed low to pay him honor. And as he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. And then in chapter 44, we have, again, not an unfamiliar scenario to the one that's taking place. First of all, the brothers are sent back. Samin is kept in prison in, in bondage and the brothers are sent back to, um, to Jacob but as they leave um, Joseph, uh, Joseph has a little bit of a, a game with them and he puts a silver cup we're told it's for, for purposes of divination we don't believe he practiced evil magic arts but this cup that he has is put in Benjamin's sack and he sends um, heralds after them 
And when they catch up with them, uh, they're accused of being thieves. And uh, they're so confident of their innocence that they say uh, to those who have come after them, look, whoever the perpetrator of such a crime would be, he, he will be put to death immediately. And uh, it's a huge, uh, horrific experience when they find that jo Jacob's uh, special son, because he thinks that Joseph is dead, is the holder of the sack in which the silver cap is. So they're brought back before Joseph. And again, as you read the scenario, you, just, you, you see how Joseph is being used of God to tease out of these brothers uh, something of their past demeanors and where they're at just now in their, their own uh, behavior towards their father themselves and, and also past behavior of Joseph. So I want to uh, just pick up in, in Genesis 45 at verse 1. No longer able to keep this um, pretense going. When Joseph could no longer control himself before all his, t uh, his attendants. And he cried out, make everyone leave my presence. And so there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they did so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. I'm sure that most of us in this room tonight will know the story, very familiar with it, so that's why... I've, uh, I've left out huge sections of it. But I do encourage, if you don't know the story, to go back over and read it through when you get an opportunity. The sermon series title is Trusting God's Hidden Plan. And we've thought about that, uh, trusting God's plan, whether we're loved or whether we're loathed, uh, whether we're uh, trusted or we're betrayed, and remember my own sermon points. Uh, and tonight I'm reversing that uh, connotation of, of positive, negative, negative, positive, and saying that we can trust God whether we're vilified or we're vindicated. What a difference a day makes was a song made popular by uh, Rini Olstead. Some of you will be way too young to remember that, but you can ask uh, some of the oldies later on. Um, the words go something like this. I won't sing it to you. What a difference a day makes. 24 little hours brought the sun and the flowers where there used to be rain. Well, couldn't that apply certainly to Joseph's life? One day he's languishing in the royal prison of Pharaoh, otherwise known as the Hole. And the next he's prime minister of Egypt, appointed by royal decree to take charge of the affairs of the world's then superpower. Let's remind ourselves uh, briefly, of the journey that's taken 
place over the last 13 years. At age 17, he's given a richly ornamented robe by his indulgent father, Jacob. Um, He's hated by his brother. This causes even further hatred. And instead of killing him, which they had originally planned to do, they sell him as a slave. And he's carried off by an Ishmaelite um, caravan of traders down to Egypt, where he's sold on to Potiphar, who is uh, the head of Caesar, of um, of, uh, uh, Pharaoh's household. Uh, And there his work ethic and his effort is rewarded. He's put in charge of everything in Potiphar's household. Uh, Potiphar's wife, Mrs. P, gets the hots for him. And when he continually refuses to have sex with her, she eventually cries attempted rape. Joseph, as a result of that false accusation, ends up in prison, where again his godly character and his exemplary nature is rewarded as he's put in charge of the care of the other prisoners. He very helpfully uh, interprets the dreams of Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and his baker, but despite his integrity and his God-honoring behavior and his attitude, he's still left languishing in jail for another couple of years. So two full years have gone past while he's been in prison, and things are about to change dramatically because of a couple of other dreams. These dreams are had by the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. And he's left disturbed by them. Uh, He calls all his uh, clever and uh, magic men together, but they can't interpret the dreams. And it's at that point when uh, the cupbearer says, oh, just, sorry, I crossed my mind. Um, A couple of years ago, when I was in prison for something that I'd been accused of, uh, there was a young Hebrew in there, and he could interpret dreams. So Joseph is sent for, He's cleaned up, he's made presentable, and through Joseph, God makes sense of Pharaoh's dream. And that's what chapter 41 is really all about. And I don't want to take too long on it because time um, is a little bit short tonight, but can I just say um, three things from chapter 41? Uh, Notice that it is God who enables Joseph to understand the dream. God enables him to understand the dreams. Genesis 41 and 16, when he's asked if he can do this, he says, I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer that he desires. And I think there's something uh, very moving in in all of that. Joseph could have uh, taken to himself a little bit of the glory of interpreting this dream and making himself look big, but he gives true credit where the credit is due. It's only God does it. Before we come on to think about that, notice that, that in this chapter 2 that he's given such opportunities. Uh, it's a little bit like the scenario that takes place at church meetings or sometimes maybe in the elders' court. Uh, a need is identified, uh, it's discussed, uh, a solution is proposed, and then the person who saw it and proposes the solution ends up getting the job to do. Um, that's kind of how I see Joseph's. He said, look, there's going to be famine going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Pharaoh, this is what you ought to do. In order to prepare for that, you need to appoint a man of integrity who will oversee that process for you. Joseph gets the job. And along with the job comes a wife. Um, Joseph is given a new name, and his wife's name also, uh, loosely interpreted, means the God who speaks. So, or the God who is alive, the God who sees the situation as it really is and speaks into that. That's what these two names signify. So he's given a new name and a new wife 
who all, and, and these names suggest that it is God who is the one who has revealed all this and spoken. And he's also blessed with two sons who were given names that revealed two very, very important principles for those who would particularly aspire to leadership and service in the kingdom of God. But before we come on to that more fully, can I quote something from a book? Uh, I've recommended a couple of books on this series already. Uh, another book that I, I found incredibly helpful and insightful. Um, it's not so much a commentary, it's more a devotional book by Chuck Swindle. Uh, in his book entitled, A Man of Integrity and Forgiveness, Joseph. He says this, of this encounter between Joseph and Pharaoh. He says, God, 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 God. All the way through the answer, Joseph refers to God. Instead of calling attention to himself, he points Pharaoh to, Joseph, to Jehovah. It isn't I, it's the Lord God. Here is a man who had truly humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. Thirteen years in his journey from being a boy of 17 who's a bit brash, a bit arrogant, very boastful. Here we have a man who says, it's all about God. I once heard a very famous Scottish preacher preach on the subject of the cross for an hour and 15 minutes without any illustrations, without any notes, without any, any anecdotes. I heard this man just talk about the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. At this time, this man's personal walk with God was under extreme scrutiny. His name was appearing in the national press. He was potentially going to go to court and potentially face prison because of activity, a false accusation that had been made against him. And as he preached on the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ, he stepped away from the microphone after the hour and 15 minutes. And just a godly hush fell on the building when he uttered these words. To preach a crucified Christ, you must first be a crucified man. And his fellow Christians, the press, they were crucifying him day after day after day. Joseph has had 13 years of extreme hardship. And at the end of it, he is just nothing less than a man who says it's all about God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And we see that truth um, displayed in the names that he gives to his children. God enables him to forget the past. Number one son is called Manasseh. It's a name that comes from the Hebrew root uh, Nashah, which means to forget. Manasseh, in an extended form, literally means making forgetfulness. Here's my first boy making me into forgetfulness. It would appear that Joseph is saying, God has made me forget. Now, of course, no one can simply erase the memories of the past, particularly if they're painful memories. We can block them. We can bury them deep in our sub or our unconscious minds. But anything that has ever happened to us is locked into our memories. Do you know, we may never forget the painful memories of the past, but we can 
and Joseph's an example of this, under God's grace, be delivered and healed of their negative and destructive effects upon our lives. Letting go of the past is a completely different concept from pretending that it never happened or ignoring the fact that painful memory gnaws away at your soul and your negative emotions are never far away from the surface. I wonder if you're one of these people who, if had, you had to face up to the memories of the past, whether you would find yourself, maybe not for the first time, spiraling into depression or revengeful feelings of desiring to get back at cruel siblings, inconsistent or unfair parents, or the Mrs. P's or the cupbearers of your life for past hurts caused to you. What an amazing grace and power has been at the work in Joseph's life to enable him to say, God has made me forget the painful sting of the past. I think we can safely conclude that forgiveness, that the forgiveness that Joseph will one day extend to his brothers some years ahead of this time, i.e. those who harmed him, is already a spiritual reality that's taken place in his heart. The forgiveness that he one day will give to those who have harmed him, that's already a spiritual reality that's taking place in his heart. Because the second son, God enables him to focus on the future. Once he has truly let go of the past, he's able to face a much more fruitful future. His second son is called Ephraim, which means God has made me fruitful. Now, it's difficult for us to imagine a Christian name or a proper name, um, your naming name, to have um, a plural ending to it. Uh, I'm not called Rodney's, but that's what Ephraim means. It's a name, but with a plural ending to it, conveying that sense of not just he's made me fruitful once, but there is to be now from this time on an expectation of fruitfulness or many fruitfulnesses, if that could ever be a word. We see the idea in Ephesians 3, uh, 20 through 21, uh, where Paul says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. What the King James Version of the Bible says, to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. Immeasurably or exceedingly abundantly is the idea conveyed in the name Ephraim. Here is a person in Joseph who's been freed from the pain and the hurt of the past and now unhindered, unrestricted by negative or vengeful feelings uh, or or plans is, is free to experience abundant life at its unimaginable best. I wonder if you dream of that. No idea what your past is like, but I wonder if you dream of being so free from it that you have an unimaginable fruitful future ahead of you. That's the hope that Joseph declares. And through Joseph, God exposes the sin of the brothers' hearts. Again, I, you know, it would be really good to take this over a longer series or, or maybe to have a full day just to look at it together. But uh, just in a few moments, I want to show you a little bit of the, the pattern that God is using. I wonder if I were to hand around uh, paper and pens tonight and, and ask you to make a list of all the people you think should get their comeuppance. Um, 
Do you know what the word comeuppance means? Those who should get what they deserve because they've done harm to others. They should get what they deserve. I wonder, I wonder who would be at the top of your list. I hope it's not me, but you never know. Um, but I wonder who would be at the top of your list. Would one sheet of paper be enough? Or come the revolution, who would you like to place against the wall? You see, as Christians, we would never, ever freely admit that we have such a list, would we? Because we just know that would be wrong. But in our heart of hearts, do we have a list? Are there people that we would love to get equal with? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that one of the characteristics of love is that it keeps no record of wrongs. And the story of this encounter between Joseph and his brothers gives us a practical demonstration of that principle of love in action. In, in the book I mentioned earlier um, by Chuck Swindoll, um, he describes the events of these chapters as being responsible for activating a seared conscience. And again, they wouldn't know this at this time. But behind even the request for food, when Joseph requests for food for his family, uh, they can't see at this time that that's the sovereign purposes, uh, the hidden hand of God working behind the scenes in order to get them in the right place at the right time. And so they're asked by their old father to go down to Egypt. I just, I, I love the interaction in the Bible there. Um, here's a group of, by now, middle-aged men who have not been a back of, of uh, scheming and planning and thinking. Uh, certainly when it came to negative or evil things, um, they've been quite astute, quite skilled at, at coming up. But, but the family's in trouble, there's no food, and, and the Bible says they're all sitting around looking at each other. And it's down to the wise and learned old father uh, to kind of say something to these sons, to get them up off their bahookies. It's a Scottish word for your bottom, if you don't know what that is. Uh, they're sitting around looking at each other, and he's saying, Come on, get down to Egypt. Get some food for us. Do you know, I wonder, what do you think? Would any thought of Joseph have crossed their minds at this point? Had, had they just forgotten about him? I don't think so for one moment. I think that they spent many a restless night, many a troubled day, remembering what they had done to Jacob's favorite son. You'll be familiar with the saying, what goes around comes around. It's a proverb. It simply means a person's actions or words, whether good or bad, will often have consequences for that person. And it's certainly going to be true for these guys, because uh, as we're going to discover. So they head off down to Egypt, and there in the first visit, uh, they encounter some questions that Joseph puts to them uh, about their motives. Joseph recognizes his brothers, and despite the, the, the toll on the, their lives that time and outdoor manual labor would have had on these men, uh, he knows who they are. Now, I, I want you just for a moment to put yourself into 
Joseph's shoes or, or his sandals or whatever he wore. Just think about that for a moment. You've, you've not seen these guys who have done you such terrible, terrible damage. You've not seen them for 15 years. And all of a sudden, they just show up in front of you in a queue one day. He's about to come face to face with the men who are single-handedly responsible for years of untold physical suffering and hardship, many nights of agonizing disturbed sleep, relentless emotional torment, and in case, and they're also the, the, the cause of you being separated from people and the place that you love most in life. And apart from any desire to get even, look, there's more. Because they're on their faces before you, paying homage, just as you had predicted, because of what God had revealed to you in a dream when you were in your teens. Ha! Huh. How would you have reacted? How would you have reacted? He speaks what the Bible says are some harsh words. And they're inaccurate, harsh words of accusation. But through that, he begins to get to the heart of the matter, peeling away the layers of pretense and the cover-up that has seared the consciences of these men and hindered their spiritual progress and development. Joseph's accusation that they might be spies could very well have been a real threat, uh, since many of the neighbors were also out of food and they could be sending people into the land to spy it out to see how they could come. And, uh, and overtake uh, the power of Egypt. And each time that they're pressed on, on this matter of spying, they reveal a little bit more about themselves. So Joseph is actually being used to get to the heart of the matter. Uh, they're revealing a bit more about themselves and their circumstances that led them to stand before Egypt's prime minister. Little did they know, but Joseph is being used by God to get at the absolute core of the truth so that confession of their sin might be made and forgiveness of that sin might be experienced. Look at 42 verse 13. And just think for a moment, in this interrogation, and as they're beginning to reveal something about why they're there in the first place, think how painful it must have been for Joseph to hear himself described as no more. It's a bittersweet moment because in the same breath that they reveal that they have well and truly forgotten about him, he hears that welcome news that his father and his younger brother are still alive. Now, folks, seriously, how can we be unmoved by all of this? Can you not just feel some of the pain and the relief that must have been surging through Joseph's emotions at this point? And yet he keeps his cool because it is yet not time to confront them and let them know who he is. God still has work to do. And so he decides that three days in jail won't harm them. And so off to jail they go. And uh, Joseph's made some plans that uh, all, um, one of them will return to Jacob and bring him back down, uh, bring the youngest brother Benjamin back down. Uh, during the three days that they're in jail, Joseph has a change of heart 
and decides that he'll only keep one of them and send all the rest of them away. But they are also having a change of heart. I want you to think, first of all, about Joseph's plans. Think about him um, and what he would, in, in his human nature, have felt. Wanting to get even, wanting to get some sort of... Make them know just exactly how he had felt when they had mistreated him. And then think about him going back and sharing with his family. As I mused about this during the week, I thought of the father coming in from work and saying, Manasseh, you'll never guess who I saw today. Oh, Manasseh. Manasseh, uh, that name that God has made me remember no more the heart of the past. Wow. Ephraim, do you want to hear about my plans to teach my brothers a lesson? Again in his mind, Ephraim, God has made me fruitful and generous for the future. I wonder, do you and I need a frequent reminder of how God has dealt with our past and how much he lavishly provides grace for our daily needs? Well, then we need to look no further than Calvary and the empty tomb. God has completely, in the finished work of Jesus, forgiven our past and given us a glorious, prosperous future. A moment of challenge for us is if there is anyone on that list I mentioned earlier that is not deserving of your forgiveness and the freedom to live a glorious, fruitful future, then neither are you or me deserving of the grace of God. And so in prison, we see the brothers discuss their past behavior, and they come out, beginning at verse 21. We're granted a rare privilege to observe the grace of God working in these men's hearts as they're led to the place of confession. The we, it's emphatic in Hebrew, so it's we are being punished, we are guilty, we saw the distress of his soul, we would not listen, we must give an account. And at hearing them say that, Joseph can no longer maintain his composure. This is the moment that he and God have been waiting for. The sinners have owned up to their sin and are now and only now can there be hope for restoration of relationship in the future. Listen again to Chuck Swindle as he comments on these events. When you have done wrong to someone and haven't gone through the necessary process to make things right with them and with God, then you haven't fully dealt with your transgression. You have become the victim of the very distress that you put that person through. We feel the same distress, they say, that we caused him and we saw it in his face. Time alone does nothing whatsoever to ease distress. Time alone cannot either ease distress and neither can it erase guilt or deal with a guilty conscience. And notice that it's Joseph's kindness that causes them to tremble. A seared conscience spurns or abuses God's grace and mercy. A humble, penitent sinner cowers before it in fear and in trembling. We note too that Joseph's grief and pain can be dealt with in such a way. It's been dealt with in such a way that it enables him to love his enemies and to do good to those who harmed him. And the test of his faith is not words or even feelings, but it is love in action towards those who have caused him pain. 
And so they head back up to the scorched land. And after their grain has all been eaten, they come back for a second visit. And it's only the severe hardship that forces them to return. And, and how often that is the case for the sinner who would come to the cross of Jesus Christ and confess his or her sin. You heard the call of God at one stage. You nearly got there. You nearly gave your life completely to Jesus. But you went away with sufficient provision to get you by. And then the hardship has to come, and it's even more severe. More severe. And so you come back to that place. That's a picture that we have in the story. And there we find that uh, Joseph examines their sincerity. And there are three things worthy of comment here in regard to the brothers. They're suspicious of Joseph's motives in offering them hospitality. Why would this man do me some good? Isn't that a strange way to behave towards a gift? Always suspicious of the gift. Some years ago, I had the privilege of doing some humanitarian work in Belarus. And we're interviewed on, on regional. It was broadcast on national Belarusian television. Uh, why are you here? Why are you doing this? It was all questions by the KGB. Uh, why are you doing this? Well, just because we want to. It's a gift. We love you. We want to bless you. Couldn't comprehend that. Why would anything do anything for anybody that there's not something back for them? Joseph wants to bless his brothers and they're suspicious of his motives. But you know, it's just become a habit, isn't it? They duly continue to pay homage by repeatedly bowing down to him. At the table, when Benjamin gets five times as much food as the rest are, we see again something of the change in these guys' lives and, and emotions. Because there isn't a word of complaint from them. I wonder if Joseph is testing them. I remember when I got that coat from my father, and how jealous they were. I wonder what happens when I give Benjamin extra blessing. Not a word recorded. I think this is a good, a good sign for us. And then the brothers face a final test. And with this, we're nearly there. Hang on in. We're nearly finished. They face a final test. When they are accused of the theft of Joseph's silver cup, they're so sure of their innocence, they offer to kill the culprit and subject the rest of them to a lifetime of slavery. Note the change of heart here. Judah recognizes in 44, 16, chapter 44, verse 16, that it is God who has uncovered their guilt. But there is even a bigger test of the repentance to come. The suggestion that Benjamin remain in slavery and the others return to their father turns the table on them. Since at one stage, they had used a very similar story and they thought they could get away with selling him into slavery. Let's not talk about it. Let's pretend he's dead. We'll go home to our father. We'll forget the bad thing we did. Joseph and the sovereign purposes of God's grace has them here in a checkmate situation. How could they possibly go back to Jacob and tell them that his second youngest son, or the youngest son of the two, is now a slave? There's no place to hide, no place to cover up the story. They are well and truly found out. 
And Judah pleads for Benjamin's freedom. He even offers himself as a slave in exchange. Chapter 44, 18 through 34. And then finally, Joseph, through Joseph, God discloses the significance of his hidden plan. Joseph's plea, sorry, Judah's plea for Benjamin's freedom and his offer to take uh, his place is overwhelming evidence of a changed life. And this is too much for Joseph, and he's no longer able to hide his identity. Uh, that he is their long-lost brother. Well, talk about a bombshell. We see the brother's reaction there in Genesis 45, verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified in his presence. And then notice Joseph's response in these final words that we read together. Genesis 45, verses 4 through 8. Then Joseph said to his brother, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five there will, be, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And the remaining chapters of this story tell about how they go back, they get Jacob, all 70 of the family, they all come to live down in Egypt. Um, you know, as I've thought back over this series, and um, about 15 minutes ago, I noticed that we had the author of one of the books I recommended to you a week or so ago, and uh, it nearly threw me, but uh, kept going. Do you know, as I've read through the story again for the umpteenth time in my Christian walk, I thought on this. Do you know, it's one thing to respond to God's grace and to give him the glory when we're vilified, when there is a negative experience in life. God, I need you. I'm holding out for you, and I'm going to give you the glory for helping me. It's a completely different thing altogether to give God the glory when we're vindicated. Because there can still be a vestige of our human pride that says, I did this, or I deserve this. And none of us do. Only God deserves the glory. And so Jacob and all his family moved to Egypt. And, and there, even after the old man dies, the brothers, they're so insecure, aren't they? Uh, they're still not completely sure that they're of their pardon and Joseph's grace and kindness. So by the time we get to Genesis 50, 20 through 21, the key verse that interprets the whole story of Joseph in Genesis he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke to them kindly. Let us pray.